This is Thought and Leaders. Hello, 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 and welcome again to another Thought and Leaders. Once again, I've scoured this beautiful, wonderful world of ours to find the most perceptive, the most innovative, and the most inspiring uh, thought leaders out there. This week, we have Val, Val Wright. Hello, Val. How are you? It is lovely to be here. Great. And you, of course, are in beautiful Los Angeles. That's right. Yes, I'm a English woman in L.A. So I'm a leadership and innovation expert. I spent my corporate life working for BMW, House of Fraser, um, Amazon, and Microsoft and Xbox. And for the last seven years, I've been helping companies with my innovation uh, organization, helping them accelerate growth and innovation. So I speak, I write, I've written a couple of books, and I advise executives, boards, and leadership teams on how to grow faster. As we are in this unlocking of the padlock era, where we are gradually going through the codes in terms of figuring out what is the code to unlock this bit and unlock that bit. You're going to get a lot of CEOs who are going to be looking at their businesses right now and thinking, hmm, do we carry on? Do we stop? Do we, dare I say it, expand? I have um, had those conversations over the last four months with CEOs, boards and executives all around the world. And what I encourage them to do is look at how they review, reset and relaunch their companies. And they're having to do that multiple times as we go through these. I love your analogy of unlocking the combination code on the padlock as we go through these various phases. Um, Initially, it was all about liquidity and how to continue to make sure the company can continue. Some companies are booming and having the best months that they've ever had. And other companies are are really trying to reevaluate their position in the market and uh, renegotiate financing, try and keep their employees paid. And and so all of those require that. How do you review? How do you reset? And how do you relaunch? As you know, over here, we have our furlough scheme. Do you have something like that over there? Yes, we do. It varies by state. And um, it varies for each company. So while there are some provisions put in place, and each company is very much doing their own thing, and you have the joys of the cash-rich companies like Apple and Microsoft and Google who say, here's four months paid leave for you to take off to look after your family, and um, let's keep paying all our contractors, and even though our buildings aren't open. You know, you have the cash-rich companies that can afford to do that, who are really taking care of their employees. And then you have the other companies who are, you know, facing choices around Chapter 11 bankruptcy or, or, you know, refinancing or, you know, merging with another company or renegotiating their debt with their banks. So there is that uh, happening uh, here right now. In the new norm, do you think that the world really will change in terms of business? It very much depends on where your company is, where your customers are, the amount of innovation that you have been able to do to re-pivot 
your business. I mean, there's an events company um, in Los Angeles called Chora Events, and they provide all of the marquees, the tents, and all of the fabulous things for the concerts and the big conferences. Now, they've had to completely flip their business. And now what they're doing is providing temporary wards for hospitals, helping the restaurants convert their restaurants to patio dining. Now, then their new normal, they've just carved out a brand new market. And so, and so what, I, what I see is there are going to be multiple new normals. You know, that right now, as we are talking in July, the states of California and Florida are in a very different, very different phase of their new normal to some of the states that haven't experienced such an impact. And so over here, we talk about zip code differences, like postcode differences, like you have to have a, a nuanced leadership that, that varies by postcode. It would be like all the counties in England having different strategies and different approaches. So new normal is going to vary. It's going to vary depending on where you are, cash flow, and it's going to vary depending on how much you've been able to reinvent yourself. It's a very difficult thing to network in this new age of ours, when, whereas, for example, in the United Kingdom, we've got 600,000 more people unemployed in the last couple of months. So with that as a backdrop, it's very difficult to start pushing things forward, isn't it? It is very easy to do what I call the ostrich effect, which is you put your head in your sand and say, I can't possibly network right now. You know, it's too difficult. There's too many other people looking for jobs. There aren't any jobs out there. It's not going to work. And that's the opposite of what you need to do, because at the very moment you decide you need to network more or that you are furloughed or that you don't want to work for your company anymore because you don't like the way that they've been treating people throughout this process, which is a very real phenomenon right now. What you have to do is lift your head up and you have to say, who do I know in my network who could help me? Who do I know in the 20 years I've been working who may be able to hire me? or may have some advice for me, or who may have an introduction for me. And you call them up, or you text them, or you drop them an email, and you say, I'd love some advice. As a fellow Brit, you know that we're not very good at that. I know, and you've got to get better at it, because otherwise, the people who are good at it are going to get the job, the opportunity, or the investment into whatever it is that you're trying to create. It's like a magnet success, and it actually draws people towards it. Do you think that that is true today? You know, I remember when I, I was part of my Microsoft days, and they relocated me from England to Seattle. And, you know, I was sat in my boss's office for my first performance review after my first year there. And I, I'd been told I was awesome. I was to, I'd been told everything was great. And then I sat for my performance review and an average performance score, and I got an average stock award and an average bonus, and I'd never been told I was average in my life. But what I realized was the level of which you have to talk about your achievements versus achieve things 
is very important. The more senior you get in your career, and for those of your readers who are listening from around the world or maybe have a global boss or a boss over in the US, will see this difference. So I coined the phrase, it's not good enough to be brilliant. You've got to be brilliant at demonstrating your brilliance. And I'm not suggesting that you become that annoying person that brags. If you're not telling your stories of success of the things that you've achieved, who will? But it can come across as bullshit. Yes. And so you have to do it in the right way. And you have to not be annoying. And you have to stick to the facts. Absolutely. My first book is called Thoughtfully Ruthless. I coined this phrase because I was wanted to be able to dispel the myth of modern leadership, which is you either need to be incredibly empathetic and loved and thoughtful and well-liked and you care about your employees, or you are ruthless and you're the cost cutter and you're the Game of Thrones charging with a big hammer to whack everybody into submission. And neither of those extremes are true. You have to have the ability to be ruthless in a thoughtful way, as in you need to know when to be ruthless. And then you need to know how to be thoughtful, but you can't be endlessly thoughtful. And so what you're saying, and the reason that you get this visceral reaction to it, is because you've got to get it right. You've got to know how to be thoughtfully ruthless. I was listening to a guy last night who was talking about snowflakes. Right. And he was saying that they melt at any sign of pressure whatsoever. Bit too macho for me, really. He was saying that we are living in a world where everyone is very apologetic, don't want to push too hard because they can see it from the other points of view. So the empathy generation has gone too extreme. In the tough business world, does it still work? There is this marvelous leader who uh, lives in California, uh, Mark Essien, and his catchphrase for his company is because we give a damn. Because he really because he really cares about his employees. Now, he said, Val, I'm probably going to annoy some people with that phrase, but I don't care. I'm a small business owner. You know, I'm growing great. Some customers will love me. Some customers will not. Some customers won't like that phrase. That's fine with me. They get to choose. Now, many of your listeners aren't in that situation. They have bosses, they have peers, they have, you know, they're working in these big matrix companies. Building relationships matters and it takes time and it takes thought. Wouldn't it be better, Val, just to say, this is what my brand is about, this is what I'm about. If you're into it, that's brilliant. And if you're not, well, we're not for you. It's really is as binary as that. Yes. But you need to lead in a very different way. And what everyone has seen around the world is companies that said we can't have a working from home policy. You know, there are certain jobs or there are certain teams, you know, we have to be physically present in order to function. You know, they've just busted that myth because, you know, companies have been leading and running their business for the last four months with a with a virtual workforce where you know they're where they're able to do so and and so that has now dispelled that myth what's happened though is companies schools universities have made a mistake in thinking they can just run their business or education establishment the same way 
But instead of saying lecture hall three or conference room A, they've said Zoom meeting one, two, three, four, five, and not change the way they communicate, not change the way they make decisions. And the companies that have been successful flipping to virtual have taught their leaders, have taught faculty different skills and different approaches for engaging people. And I'm shaking my laptop as I talk to you while trying to talk to people on this rectangle screen, which is very different. The the ability to make a connection and build relationships when you aren't sat having lunch for an hour or you aren't sat having coffee. You know, a number of the leaders I'm working with right now have just started new jobs. And so these executives have come into a company. In some cases, they, they were interviewed by screen and now they're joining their company by screen. And so there are three things that you have to do as a leader when you're leading through this rectangle letterbox is, first of all, you have to make sure you truly know people on a personal level. You have to invest the time. You have to learn who they are. You have to know whether they're sitting in a room and there's five other people in the house all trying to work, study. They might have a sick family member living with them. You, you've got to know more about the person. And, you know, you've probably seen it yourself. You, you've probably seen more dogs, cats, kids, in people's backgrounds than ever before. That's a great opportunity for leaders to know more about who their team is. So EQ is live and kicking, isn't it? You have to ask people, what do you need from me? I'm, I need a job, and so I'm going to do whatever it takes to just keep this job going and look at this oblong box. So, so that's good. So if they're being honest about it and saying, my biggest concern is job security right now, that's really important to know as a manager. And, and having these blunt conversations, and I love that you're, you're telling me these blunt reactions, but I don't think people have the question. They don't ask the questions, and then people don't answer it in a blunt, brave way. As you, as you said, you know, someone says, what do you need? You go, oh, I'm fine. I'm all right. Everything's okay. And you have to have the uh, boldness to be able to say, you know what I really need right now? I need to know that my job's secure for the next six months because I'm the sole breadwinner. The manager is often in between, isn't she? She's in between, you know, the team and then the next level up and stuff like that. And, of course, she is going through her own stuff as well. So how does she look after herself? I have these battery packs. I've got four battery packs on my desk right now, keeping my devices all charged. Because because we're worried, right, that, you know, my um, device is going to like fall apart during this interview that I'm having, or, you know, that my phone won't be charged. And we worry about like what percentage our battery's at. Now, if you think about your own battery level right now at this moment, wherever you're listening in the world, you know, are you at a hundred percent, 80%, 50%, 20% low battery mode? Take care of your own battery levels by boosting your energy and taking care of yourself. And as a manager, you have to do that so that you can take care of others. Wow. First, they have to take care of their own battery level. Then they have to check in. And, you know, I have teams that use this phrase now. They just they say, like, what percentage battery are you on today? You have to make sure that your team's battery levels are charged within the constraints that we're living in right now. And being able to take control and being able to move from look at all of the things that are happening to me to look at all the things I can control. They're the things that make a successful company stand out. Yeah. You make me think of my, my uncle, my late uncle. And he used to say to me that as a parent, 
uh, when once the uh, kids have uh, you know flown the nest and all that sort of stuff. He said, "Your role as a parent changes." I said, "What does it change to, Uncle?" And he said to me, "It changes that you are a battery booster when they need it, and you are there to recharge when they need it." Your uncle gave you wise advice. People think about CEOs in what way? What do people really think that a CEO is about? Traditionally, what's the thought of what their job is? Scenario planning, A, B, C, what might happen in the future, and making sure they are taking care of their employees more than they had in the past, because the risks outside are either there or are perceived to be there are a lot higher. That's what the HR is about, surely, is it not? The worst thing you can do is is, is leaving, taking care of employees to HR. Why? Are you anti-HR now? <laughs> I am anti-leaders absolving responsibility to one person and one function, whether it's diversity, whether it's HR, because their people um, belongs to every leader. And if you say, well, that's really the job of HR, then you're saying it's not a priority for me. Given the environment that we are all living in right now, you have to demonstrate and you have to show that you value your employees and you're taking care of your employees because to do that, that will help you take care of your customers and will help you take care of your shareholders. And you will see companies that are doing that that are building a connection with with employees that will last for a very long time. I was talking to a CEO yesterday. He is reviewing the people elements of his company just as much as sales and profit and inventory and logistics. Knowing the numbers and the statistics that matter about your length of service, your turnover, your cost of hire, how long it takes to hire someone, your ability to close a hire, your ability to get someone through the door after you've interviewed them, your rate of attrition, how you are thinking about employee productivity, talking about your superstars, how you don't tolerate mediocrity, pay attention when somebody is in a misfit job and you put them in a job that they're far better at, how you don't put people in people manager roles if they can't manage people and then you take them out of people management roles if they're a terrible people leader. All of those conversations need to take place with the CEO and their leadership team at a frequent level. And don't just say, oh, it's a HR practice. Oh, we'll do performance reviews once a year. Oh, go talk to the HR person about it. We can get along, we can get along. Oh, if only you trusted me. One of the things that I teach and one of the things that is very important is helping people manage through change. Do people understand? Do people believe? And if people don't understand, you can't get them to believe. You know, rarely you'll have these blind followers of, Jonathan, I'll do whatever you say. I don't really understand what you want me to do, but I've got you. You know, I'm going to follow you no matter what. You know, you get these kind of blind followers. But you sometimes have people who don't really understand, so they can't believe, or they fully understand what you're trying to do, but don't believe that you're going to actually be able to do it. And those are, you know, the cynical, dangerous distractors that, you know, exist in companies and, you know, across countries. How do you think our political leaders have been doing following your approach to rapid growth done right? 
you have a political leader who's going to give one instruction to the team, the team being the citizens, and you get another guy who gives a completely opposite instruction. Yeah, it's it's the number one frustration that happens inside companies, which is uh, who makes decisions. People think they make a decision and then somebody above them goes and makes a different decision or a decision gets made and it gets undone. Or the example you gave, you know, there's a decision here, but then someone's going and doing the polar opposite. That happens. That happens inside companies. And so there's a really simple like 30 second exercise all of your listeners could do right now, which is you write on a, on a piece of paper, three columns on the first column, it's decisions you own today that you want to keep owning. Then in the far right column, on the other side, the far right column is decisions you own today, but you don't want to own. You want to delegate it. It's not your responsibility. You should give it to someone else. And then the middle column is decisions that are confusing you because it's not clear who owns what decision. And when I do this exercise with CEOs, with boards, with leaders, it's fascinating how many decisions are in that middle column that people don't really know who makes those decisions or that they've got decisions that they don't think they should own. So you then do this big like conversation where you help people understand who makes which decisions and you remove that decision dilemma because you have to have clarity about do I have do I have decision can I make this decision without involving you or are you going to override me or you know should really the two of us have to make this decision together you know that happens in companies all the time and if you can pause do that fast exercise have the conversation and they're tough conversations they're not easy conversations um then you can unlock like that clarity and people can go about building companies, not arguing over who owns what. And so what you have to be able to do is you have to go to the person who has the ultimate power and say, we are confused. We are causing spin. You know, there are people, you know, the time that people are spending trying to figure this out aren't do it, aren't spending time on the things they should be. I was recently speaking to Sakari Cooper about, leaders who don't say sorry if they've made a mistake what's your view on that if you've made a mistake or if something hasn't gone as you expect you have to be publicly vulnerable i mean amazon has this leadership value and it's called being vocally self-critical bezos himself wrote this you do not believe your own body odor or that of your team smells of perfume <laughs> <laughs> So, so, so think, so okay, think about it. What. You don't believe your own body odor or that of your team smells of perfume. So what Bezos used to say is, yeah, is that um, I want you to know that you have flaws. I want you to know that we will make mistakes, but you've got to talk about them. And so in every strategy review, we would have to talk about why this strategy we were proposing. I was on the fashion leadership team at the time. We're pitching. We're going into men's designer fashion. We had to list in our strategy plan all the reasons why it would fail, all the reasons why it might not work. And then when we do in our quarterly business reviews, we'd have to highlight all the things we'd screwed up that quarter. And you wouldn't have rocks thrown at you. You wouldn't be fired. You would be in trouble if you didn't talk about the negative parts of your business. Now, so it's the same thing. It's like if you're not having those conversations, if when you make a mistake, you don't say sorry, or if you don't talk about the things that aren't working, you're skipping down the garden thinking everything's lovely and you don't see the thunderstorm that's heading your you way. Were- 
speaking earlier about uh, your friend and mine, uh, HR, I was involved once with a very, very big international company um, and uh, involved with the PR of that sort of company. But the CEO of this company, doesn't that the PR company couldn't do anything. Is it time that some CEOs, you know, let, let go a bit and go back to what I was saying and allow themselves to delegate? One of the, the key criteria for a successful CEO is that they have a successor in place. And, you know, extrapolating what you say, if you have a CEO who holds everything very close to themselves, chances are they don't have a successor. Do you think that the way that you, that one, not you, the way that one handles being a CEO or manager is the same sort of approach that you should take in one's own life? A lot of the tools um, you know, and the, the ideas I talk about around effective communication, effective time management, ability to quickly come up with new ideas, those can apply to anybody in any part of their life. So as a mum, you should you think that the ways that you are talking about in your books also apply to a mum or dad's personal life? Yeah the business of life then that's right yeah tell us name of your latest book rapid growth done right lead influence and innovate for success by my great publisher pogan page yeah absolutely and what's that name of that earlier book that you did thoughtfully ruthless the key to exponential growth uh that was from team over in wiley Fantastic. Now, I'm sure you can get it at Kogan Page themselves. Get hold of this book because it really is one that uh, is worth reading if you want to uh, make sure that you're not just going to grow in this new era, but you're going to grow uh, quickly and you're going to grow in the right direction. So thank you so much, Val, for joining us. That was wonderful. It was a lot of fun. Brilliant. And to everyone else, remember that business is business and business is in our hands. But as long as you could just do that little one thing to make this world a little bit of a better place. Speak to you soon. If you have an outstanding story to tell the world, you could be considered for one of Jonathan's podcasts. Contact us today for world-class brand creative content as well as personal development strategy that builds your brand. Get in touch with Jonathan by emailing reinventatme.com. That's reinventatme.com.